uh, I've been sick all week, and I'm I'm not a hundred percent yet. Uh, I tried to teach Friday and realized that talking and breathing are related, and uh, <laughs> so I run out of I run out of gas pretty quick. Uh, but I do want to I do want to look at a passage, the one that we use for our call to worship, Acts chapter two, verses forty two to forty seven, and I want to talk about those particularly because of what we're doing today. You know, we're meeting here in a home in in the Inland Empire, and uh, uh, we're uh, meeting at the Disciple Center. Though there was talk of them meeting in a home as well. I don't think they did that. I think they may have uh, met at the Disciple Center, but I don't know. Yeah. So uh, the Disciple Center in many ways is a very traditional congregation. And in many ways we're unique. Uh, We're traditional in that we attempt to hold this ancient Judeo-Christian faith uh, in our lives and our homes and our congregation in in the forms handled down by the several large traditions found within Judaism and Christianity, which is why when you attend relatives' churches or you go to historical churches and the liturgy is done, most of you will be familiar enough with the liturgy to be able to participate in that context. And I've heard that back from high church Protestant churches and Catholic churches and Orthodox churches and and then also uh, Messianic congregations and others that, that some of you have gone to. Uh, We're also unique in that most of our brothers and sisters in Judaism and Christianity only hold to one of these traditions or to a non-denominational eclecticism that is largely uninformed or personality or personally digested. But we're attempting to understand through study and experience all of the rich traditions of this faith so that we are better informed and equipped to follow the faith and so that we can connect more effectively with fellow adherents. Uh, We're also unique in that we emphasize the home over the congregation in the learning and living of this faith, and that is intentional. Now, we've had a couple of situations this year that has required us to uh, have services in homes. Uh, We had the the, uh, cold (laughs) that uh, when the uh, facility heater broke at at the Disciple Center, uh, in those rare times when Southern California was cold. And then uh, we had this one where they're uh, blocking off our lifeline freeway between us. And so we're, we're scattered and having to gather that way. Well, as I thought about that, rather than do the message that I originally planned, I thought about this text that is our call to worship in that context. So I wanted to call this uh, the next generation kind of house-to-house thing. And the passage that we're looking at is uh, chapter 2 of Acts, verse 42 to 47. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, sharing them with all and anyone who might have need. Day by day, continually with one mind, in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now this is a description of the early community of faith in Jerusalem with the apostles with them and uh, with the temple standing. So the temple worship is in full operation. The synagogues are in full operation. And this daily kind of connecting of the community of faith goes on. And there's some interesting uh, phrases here. In verse 42 it says, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. The word there, didache, uh, is a term that became known for a document uh, that was um, very early written down and distributed among Christians. The didache, and we read it a few years ago. Uh, this this teaching, these, the basic teaching of the apostles. Now it's important to keep in mind that these people are already well established in the Hebrew scriptures. They already know the liturgy, they're involved in the temple, they're involved in the synagogues, they're involved in those things on a regular basis. Their Judaism is fully intact, but their Yeshua faith, their faith in the Messiah is having to be placed on that and interconnected with it. And so one of the things that they had to do was devote themselves to the teachings of the apostles because at this point, what you and I call the New Testament is not written. So the teaching of the apostles has to be orally uh, committed to memory and committed to understanding so that they can add that to uh, the service. And their gathering together probably involved uh, this integration of those teachings into the teachings of Moses and the prophets that they already had. Secondly, it says to fellowship. This is that word koinonia. This is a mutual interaction of belonging to each other. Um, in other words, they were intentional about their relationship as fellow believers. This is that one anothering aspect. It's not just we belong to all who have this common faith. We really do belong to one another in a sense that's relational. And that can only be done locally. You can't really know everybody who's a believer. Um, uh, you, you can know those believers with whom you interact regularly. And that's where your fellowship and where your koinonia is supposed to be uh, involved. Then there's a phrase here called the breaking of bread. Now, the phrase breaking of bread has a specific meaning in Christian tradition. In Christian tradition, this is in reference to the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or the, the uh, communion or whatever your historical group called it. But the, but the term at this point, remember, there is no Christianity at this point. So the term at this point has its Jewish meaning. And the breaking of bread found in the, in the Gospels and in, in the Scriptures um, is about a celebratory ritual that we all are familiar with because it's the idea of taking the bread and breaking it and saying the brekka, the what's called the hamotzi. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth food from the earth. That that. That ritual that's done at the beginning of every meal and in some sense at the beginning of every ritual in, in Judaism began to be a common practice that they 
continued from their Judaism, but this time it began to be uh, that oneg um, that's there. And then the scripture says, uh, and prayer. And that's probably a bad translation. The Greek actually says the prayers, meaning that they are reciting the traditional Jewish prayers at the time of their gathering. So they are gathering formally, probably uh, for daily prayers, probably for the weekly prayers at the Sabbath. When they do that, they will break the bread at the Olnig, and that breaking of the bread is an acknowledgement of them being a part of Israel and of this new community of faith uh, that's going on there. Now, it's likely that these believers begin to use Saturday night for this gathering because the Havdalah service, which is the end of the Shabbat, is right at the time when the resurrection would have taken place. And so that period, right after sundown on Saturday, moving into the evening hours uh, of the first day of the week, began to be a celebration not only of the foundation, they've just observed the Shabbat, but they're now extending that into the celebration of the resurrection, which will ultimately... Um, be separated by the church fathers in thinking of the first day as happening Sunday morning when it really begins the evening before. And in traditional liturgy, it begins that Saturday evening as well. So uh, the Greek's clear here that they were reciting the prayers, not just gathering to pray. And that means that they're formally gathering, probably on the Shabbat or the end of the Shabbat, to engage in this liturgical expression. So what's going on is they are continuing to follow the liturgical traditions of Judaism, and that will continue also in the diaspora as Gentiles begin to be joined with them. So the Gentiles don't have to create some new thing. They will inherit a system already in place that has Judaism as its foundation and the Yeshua faith uh, on top of that. So... It talks about the Lord manifesting himself among them in verse 43 as the apostles are doing uh, uh, miraculous things. It's interesting to me as I look at the scriptures, there are seasons where God is quite active and seasons where God is not active. Uh, we tend not to think that way. We're, we, we tend to think that God is always active, and he is always active, but the manifestations, these miraculous manifestations, seem to come in seasonal uh, revelatory aspects, um, and uh, we don't we don't get a lot of uh, information about the other things that God is doing because in many cases they're not revelatory. He is simply doing something for a community or or uh, uh, assisting them in some ways. Certainly, there are all kinds of miracles that happened among God's people down through the centuries that aren't in the scriptures. Um, so while they don't reinforce the revelatory aspect, they certainly are part of God's presence and manifestation among us, which is one of the reasons why we give testimony at our, at our, at our worship. Now, I want you to look at verses 44 and 45. 44 and 45 says, Those who believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions uh, and sharing them with, with all as anyone might have need. What they're really engaging in is tzedakah. 
I don't have to tell this congregation about Sadaka. You are probably one of the better congregations that I've ever been in to to do that. You're serious about it. You do try to help each other out. Uh, you you uh, you share and you find ways to to uh, help each other. I think that's a real sign of understanding that we belong to one another and that there's a unity of the faith. And of course, we want that to spill over to other believers beyond just the congregation. We, You take care of your own children, but you take care of other people's children too, right? And so in that sense, we, uh, we, we begin at the home uh, and then express it beyond the congregation even in those kind of contexts. Now, there's one more uh, uh, verse here before I ask you some questions. Um, there's not going to be an exam. I'm just, I just want to have lead the discussion as part of the message. Um, it says that they were day by day continuing with one mind. They were, they were in agreement in this context. In the temple, uh, certainly something that's no longer available uh, for Jews and Christians, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number uh, day by day those who were being saved. So what's going on here is this day by day being in the temple, that's the liturgical part, and then breaking bread from house to house and sharing common meals. I want to, I want to talk to you guys about this house-to-house -house thing. Um, uh, as God-fearers began to join the Jewish community and then rank pagans came into faith uh, uh, as well, uh, it became very common for the faith not to happen in the synagogues, uh, the synagogues began to remove people who held to Yeshua faith. And the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, and people couldn't get to it in the diaspora uh, that often anyway. So what began to become the home of the community was the homes of the people. We have biblical texts that let us know that there were congregations that met by rivers, by bodies of water, not swimming pools, but hey, that works, right? Uh, and uh, that's where Paul meets Lydia. They would they would gather uh, as uh, Jewish communities out by a river, and they would say the prayers, do the liturgies, have a common meal, co connect with the community that was local. And if people were visiting, they would know to go out to that place and look for them if they didn't find a, a synagogue in the town. So this gathering uh, is from... Uh, House to house is the notion I want us to think about. Um, some of us, certainly not all of us, have houses that can be gathering points for our congregation. And I would like us to consider that for more than just emergency. So I'd like us to think about to what extent, when you go home today, I want you to look at your house, I want you to look at your property, and I want you to kind of do what... Uh, what has been done by others when we needed to, okay, we'll set up this way, right? Uh, uh, get the house cleaned up, let's, let's go. Um, but I want us to think more, what could be done in my home? What could this congregation benefit in my home 
in this in this context. Now, that's not going to be true for everybody. There are going to be people that don't have homes or don't have homes that uh, lend themselves to that, or you may be in a community where they don't allow people to, to gather or there's no parking. And I, so I'm not, I'm not wanting to place this on an even thing. I'm just saying that within the congregation there are resources, and those resources uh, allow us to be able to do some things that we might not be able to do if it's all at a facility or all at a facility that's, uh, you know, 25 miles away from, from many of us or 50 miles away from some. So first of all, I want you to ask yourself, what's the, what's the four purposes of the gathering? We gather to worship and pray as we have done today. We gather for instruction, uh, which we're doing somewhat today. We gather for fellowship. Uh, and that includes community meals, which we're doing today, uh, and for reconciliation. And hopefully, we're all getting along pretty good, and we don't need to <laughs> we don't need to do any reconciliation today in that context. <clears throat> so, I want you to ask yourself what you could do uh, with your home in the congregation in uh, in this way. First of all, ceremonial things. To what extent could your home be a place where members of the congregation come for Shabbat? You know, now we, we've been doing that somewhat. Uh, we certainly have the primary times when our congregation uh, meets, our, you know, for worship on Shabbat. I've noticed in recent times that's becoming more and more difficult because of traffic and because of the day. Maybe. What we need to do is maintain our Sunday services, but we could have a more pronounced uh, Sabbath gathering in, in some of our homes where that rotates or those kinds of things. Uh, something to think about. To what extent do you have other families over in your home for Shabbat or some of the singles? Uh, this is a difficult congregation to be a single in. Uh, because we're so family-oriented, so it's a nice way to draw them into that context. And, and non-congregants. There are people that probably need to be part of the Disciple Center, and since we don't hold public services and invite them, you all come, the, the, the point of contact is probably going to be our homes. People come to our homes, they enjoy Shabbat with us or something else, and then say, gee, I'd like to be part of a congregation like that, and we... we our homes then become the entrance to the congregation. Uh, holy days, having seders in the home, we've been doing that uh, for a while, um, and I'm hoping that we'll do more of that. Uh, maybe Hanukkah parties, Purim parties, uh, Advent, Christmas, open houses, people have done that. Uh, those are possibilities for us to do at various holy days uh, throughout the years. Uh, life cycles, when, uh, when our grandkids were being named, um, Brian and Cheryl's home was about this size, maybe a little bigger than this covering it, right? And uh, uh, so how, you, how many people can you get in there? So we had the naming over at our home in that context. So that, that's another way of, of doing that. Um, uh, baptism, anybody who's got a pool, uh, baptism might be a, a great way. So, again, think about how would you set up for that? How would that be done? What I'm hoping we'll do is create a database that we all know where the homes are where things can be done. 
I'm also hoping that you'll be very aware of where the homes are of the people who are the, you know, maybe the five households closest to where your household is, so that we begin to see the networking of where we where we exist, both in the Inland Empire and in, in Orange County. Uh, confirmation fellowships and other kinds of things that, that uh, we're certainly going to have a lot of. Uh, what was it Alan said to me, uh, or someone said to me earlier today that, uh, we figure that we have a lot of people here, but it'd still only be about 12 adults <laughs> because we have so many children, you know. So we have to think through that kind of a, of, a, of a setup. Now, they won't stay children, you know. They tend to grow up on us, and they'll become teenagers, and then we'll have a different dynamic going on in the congregation uh, when, when there's that many teenagers, right? Um, now, instruction, uh, Bible study groups, some people have already done those, men's meetings, women's meetings, children's meetings, like the choir thing that's going on. Uh, I think there are other things that could be done. I've, um, I think that, again, as, as the children are growing up, there may be some things that we could do where they could learn to do some things. You know, I've, I've, Linda had the one gathering where she had people help her make lasagna, but I, I can imagine you know, cooking classes and repair classes and maybe guitar lessons and other kinds of things where we could, uh, where we could create those kinds of uh, ministry structures in our homes. Um, uh, book, book clubs, music groups. Uh, I love hearing the group uh, singing right before service begins, uh, you know, when we have that. And I'd like them to do some things in the service, and, and you know, those kinds of groupings can be, can be really valuable. Um, showers, agapes, other kinds of things that we've talked about. All of these things done in our homes mean that we don't have to pay large amounts of money for facilities. And they're easier to do, and the dynamics can adjust because, uh, you know, people are in town and out of town, and, and the congregation is never exactly 100% the same people all the time. So I'm hoping that we'll think about a congregation that is as much at home in our homes as we are in a facility. Uh, because we don't know down the road to what extent uh, facilities will be allowed. We don't know to what extent uh, they'll be affordable. Uh, all those kinds of things are, are part of this issue. And if you think about it, your family doesn't end because you have to move or relocate. Family is family, and it goes on through generations in multiple locations. And that's something we need to think about that dynamic as well. In, in our own congregation. So um, I'm out of gas. <laughs> so I think I'm going to close it up there and maybe we can have a brief uh, discussion. Maybe some of you have already thought about some of these things that could be done in your home. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful that your community of faith is not bound. Uh, they've lived in tents They've worshipped in tents, they've worshipped in temples, in synagogues and in homes, in open areas and enclosed, in caves. And Lord, we can do the same. Help us, Lord, to have the dynamic of a living faith in our homes, in our families, and help us to be wise stewards of what you have already provided for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.